This podcast was recorded on April 6, 2021. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of Double Line Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. Double Line has no obligation to provide updates or changes. everybody. Welcome to The Sherman Show. I'm Jeff Sherman here with my co-host, Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And today we have a very special guest. Uh, he's a founding partner and CEO of GavCal. It's one of the world's leading independent providers of global investment research, according to their tagline, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so very well positioned there, Louie. Uh, this is Louis, Louis Vincent Gay. Uh, welcome to the show today. Thanks a lot, Jeff. Thanks, Sam. Uh, delighted to be here. Thanks for having yeah, me. Yeah, so you're, you're coming in north of us from Canada in our time zone. Um, you know, we've been a big fan of your research for many years. You've written many books. Most recently, one that's great, I recommend to a lot of our listeners out there, Clash of the Empires, Currencies and Power in a Multipolar World. Uh, came out probably a couple of years ago. I mean, just just fabulous on uh, just thinking about the interplay of, of the geopolitical landscape. But, you know, I think it's also awesome, too. Uh, you got your bachelor's degree here in the U.S. You know, you came from Duke, um, which was shocking not to see him in the tournament this year. Uh, <laughs> you know, as we just saw all that. No, no, yeah. no offense. My, my team didn't. It wasn't it. a real tournament. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't, <laughs> doesn't count. No Kentucky, no Duke. Right. Um, but you joined the French Army after college. You served as a second lieutenant, too. So you, you've done your your duty to your, your country as well there. So congratulations on that. Thank um, you. But you in 2001, uh, after working at BMP, you founded Gave Call with uh, your father, Charles, right? That's and, right. As well as with Anatole uh, Koleske. So I love, I, I always struggle with his name, Anatole. But the thing is, is like the Gave Call, it's just a great name as well. But um, I think you guys put out some really, really terrific research out there. And again, this isn't just a cheap plug because you're here, um, but you, you really covered the entire landscape, which for a small shop as yourself, is just impressive. So let me just start off. What is top of the mind today? What, what are you thinking about today? And, you know, what are what are some of the key concerns and opportunities you see right now? Well, first of all, thanks. Uh, thanks so much for the kind words. Uh, I, I don't uh, begrudge you at all the cheap plugs. I love the cheap plugs. Please, uh, <laughs> please, please keep them going all, all, all show all during the show. Uh, thanks. Uh, thanks a bunch for having me. Um, you know, when I look at markets, my, my starting point uh, is a very simple one, um, is that there's three prices that matter more than any other uh, three prices. That in essence, almost everything else is is priced off of. Um, it's the U.S. 10-year Treasury yield, it's the U.S. dollar, and it's the oil price. Um, I find that in my life, and I've, you know, I've been doing this, I guess, a little over 20 years now. Uh, when I get the direction of these three prices right, things work out pretty well for me. Like, you know, that the pieces fall fall into place. When I get the direction of these wrong, that's when I lose money, um, which happens all the time. Um, so today, you know, today, I think what's interesting is I do think we are potentially, you know, in the past six months, we've had pretty violent turns in all three of these prices. Um, you know, for the past few years, three, four five years, we were in an environment of structurally rising dollar. I think this is now over. We're now in an environment of structurally weak dollar. 
Um, we were in an environment of bond yields that were flat to down. Uh, we're now in, in the past six months, we've been in an environment of bond yields that are moving higher. And um, we were in an environment really since 2013, 14 of falling oil prices. And I also think this is over. So this means that the investment environment is basically changing before our eyes. Um, and, you know, the big question mark for me is, okay, we've moving from falling to rising interest rates, from rising dollar to falling dollar, falling oil to rising oil. Have people adjusted their portfolios to this new reality? Um, you've, been, you've been doing this for a while as well, Jeff, and you know that, you know, portfolios don't turn on a dime, right? Um, they, don't, they don't turn on a dime because, you know, investment committees take a while to make decisions because guys who've been doing well usually don't change their stripes quickly, et cetera. So um, for me, the big question is, as I look at oil, as I look at yields, as I look at the dollar, by the way, each feeding into each other, right? As oil prices go up, then yields go up, et cetera. Um, as they feed into each other, the big, the, big, the big question mark for me is, is this a dead cat bounce or is this the start of a new trend? Um, and I think it's the start of a new trend. Um, I, I, mean, I know I'm being long-winded, but I think it's the start of a new trend. Partly, you know, I think we're all the fruits of our own experiences, right? And I've spent 20 years doing emerging markets, uh, 20 years lived in Hong Kong, mostly covering Asia. And for me, like alarm bells ring when I see um, rising yields and falling currency. Um, you know, if I'm, let's say, investing in Indonesian government bonds and I see rising bond yields in Indonesia, and at the same time, the rupiah falls. For, I read that as the market telling me that the policy settings are inappropriate. Um, and this is what I see in the U.S. today. Really, since last August, yields have been rising and the U.S. dollar has been going nowhere to down. Uh, and this, frankly, in spite of terrific news in the U.S., the U.S. economically is doing better than everybody. You've got a roar, you know, you've rolled out the vaccines better than almost anyone. Your growth is roaring back, et cetera. You know, politically, the U.S. looks stable now after a rough summer. Um, so, you know, after, with all this, you would expect the U.S. dollar to be ripping it, and it's not. Um, so I look at this and I think, okay, the market is telling me that the policy settings in the U.S. are way too loose, uh, both on the fiscal side and the monetary policy side. And until that changes, I, I don't see why we should expect the U.S. dollar to rally meaningfully or the, or the bonds, or bonds to rally meaningfully. Right. And I, I think you've seen the commitment, not just from the Fed chairman with Jay Powell saying, you know, look, not even just the not even thinking about thinking about raising rates, but he just yeah. keeps doubling that commitment. And then on top of that, he's talking about if they adjust asset purchases, it's probably to the upside. Right. Yeah. So they, they want to stay extremely accommodative, no end in sight. Um, but the fiscal side, um, as you mentioned, too, I kind of see no end in sight. We passed a bill you know, $1.9 trillion spending bill. And all of a sudden, we're now talking about the next one, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it is hard to see there being some change, of course, here. And so if you if you were to kind of say that one of these policies would change, which one would it be first? Uh, I don't know. Uh, to, be, to be perfectly honest, I mean, I'll adjust once they change. But right now, they seem to be in absolutely no hurry to change. Um, you know, I look at February, uh, you know, in February, the Fed bought $180 billion worth of U.S. Treasuries. Um, you know, they told us they'd be buying $120 billion. Right. Um, they bought $180 billion. Now, I don't have the full data for, for March yet, but in the third week of March, they bought $137 billion. 
Um, you know, again, like, you know, so they were on a track again to buy, let's say, 180 billion. Now, for me, there's two interesting points here is if I tell you I'm going to buy 120 billion, you know, I know how to spend 120. I don't go out and spend 180. Um, like that's something that's, you know, pretty easy to measure. So why would they go out and buy 180 when they said they do 120? Um, is it because they're trying to prevent the bond market from melting down? Um, and if it is, basically if, because the issuance coming from the U.S. Treasury is just so high, um, then what's interesting is even though the Fed is already doing more than they said they would, they said they do 120, they're doing 180. Even in spite of that, bond yields are keep going up, keep going up. So it's like even what they are doing isn't enough. So to your point, it, it becomes a question is, you know, as the Fed basically already being captured by the U.S. Treasury. Um, right. You know, the, the, the U.S. deficits are becoming so big uh, and the debt that is being printed is so large, you know, 1.9 trillion as soon as Biden comes in, another 2.2 trillion now. But there's really nobody who can buy these. Like foreigners don't have them that many dollars to, to buy U.S. debt with. Private savings in the U.S. don't have that many dollars. There's only one player in town who can buy this, and that's the Fed. So I, I don't know who stops first. Um, I, to be honest, I, funnily enough, you would think, well, you know, at some point the Fed will tell the U.S. Treasury that they, they need to stop. But we're nowhere near yet that. So. I'm, you know, I'm not gonna like get to your point, the point you were just making. I don't think that happens for for quite a few years. So, do I need to worry about it today? No, probably not. For, right. for now, well, yeah. Well, on top of that, too, I think when you look at the percentage of ownership, foreign demand hasn't been there for really about four years now. Yep. Um, there's been a declining, you know, as a as a percent of outstanding that ownership. You've seen kind of the domestic ownership here in the U.S. be somewhat stable. Over the last couple of years, it did accelerate a little bit, but the Fed, as you as you mentioned, absorbs that all. And so, as as we think about this this experiment with extreme deficits, especially in you know we are in the middle of a crisis, we're responding to it, but you know the next plan isn't for the crisis; it's just to continue to spin and spin and spin. So, at some point, you know what happens to the inflation dynamic? And we saw this in the repricing yields. You mentioned it in August. That really started with the repricing of inflation expectations. We've seen that translate into real growth, kind of a real yield, let's say, a story over the last two months or so now. Um, where does it come from here, too? Because you, you ask the bond market saying, look, we're going to see some form of inflation, but we still have these negative real yields, which I think is why the Fed has stepped up those purchases you mentioned. So, you know, when it comes to inflation, have you ever seen the movie Life of Brian? Yes. You know, the Monty yes. Python? Yes. All right. Uh, do you remember that scene in Life of Brian? where uh, John Cleese stands up and says, you know, what have the Romans ever done for us? And then like one guy says, well, they did do the roads. And another guy says, well, they did do public safety. And another, well, there's the schools and there's this and there's that. And then at the end, he's like, okay, well, apart from education, the wine, the schools, the public, et cetera, what have the Romans ever done for us? I feel a little bit that way looking at inflation today. Um, it's like, well, you know, aside from rising oil prices, aside from rising metal prices, aside from rising food prices, Aside from the fact that you can't get semiconductors, aside from the fact that uh, secondhand auto uh, inventories are at record lows in the United States, apart from the fact that uh, home inventories are at record lows, apart from the fact that uh, money supply is growing at 26%, uh, broad money supply is growing at 26% when it's never grown past 15, um, apart from the fact that the budget deficits are growing faster than they ever have, 
you know, why should I worry about inflation? Um, it's like, you know, what have the Romans ever done for us? Like, if you're not going to worry about inflation today, given everything that's unfolding, given the supply chain disruptions, given the fact that, you know, you have the shipping costs going through the roof, the U.S. dollar going down, the renminbi going up at a time when inventories are at record low. So the restocking is going to cost you an arm and a leg. Like, if you don't worry about inflation today, you're just never going to worry about inflation. You might as well accept that, you know, look, the U.S. government last year added $39,000 of debt per working American. This is an experience that has just never been done anywhere in the world. Like this, this amount of increase. To put things in perspective, the U.S. Uh, government added between two and three times as much government debt per capita as European governments. You know, and it's not like in Europe we didn't do anything. The U.S. did twice as much, and they're doing it again this year. And they're doing it again this year. So, uh, and all that is being funded by by uh, by money printing. Now, you know, I'm I'm a big fan of the French economist Jacques Reff, and you know, his big saying was, "Inflation consists of subsidizing expenditures that give no return with money that does not exist." Um, and and to me, that's exactly what we're seeing today: subsidizing. Uh, expenditures that give no return with money that doesn't exist, the money that's coming up of thin air. Now, you know, you look at the, there's nothing wrong in the increase per debt, you know, per se. You know, if, you know, if the U.S. government came out and used all that money super productively, why not? You know, and then you repay the debt later. But, you know, the four and a half trillion increase in debt that we've seen so far, plus, you know, how productive is the next three trillion? I think is, a, is a, the, the four and a half we've already spent, that's completely unproductive, like zero productivity. It was um, just plugging the gap, right? It was plugging the gap either for corporate America or for the unemployed or those that were was, disenfranchised, right? It was, it was subsidizing consumption. Right. So you stop production, but you want to keep consumption at the same level. And then you're surprised that prices go up. I mean, you don't produce and, and you want to keep consuming the same way. So... No, I think uh, inflation inflation is, you know, we are entering into an inflation era. And, you know, that goes back to what I was starting with at the beginning. That's why I think we you're, you're in a structural bear market on the US dollar. You're on a structural bear market on bonds. And you're on a structural bull market on energy. Yeah. So to that point, too, um, you've written a lot about not just the uh, supply constraints and the shortages out there, but also the abundancy. Um, I think one of your key points was like the labor markets, right? The globalization really allowed there to be this abundance of labor. And so it is kind of strange that during a recession, we saw a spike in wages, or at least we didn't see a, a degradation in wages. Now, we look at hour to hourly earnings. We know composition shifts have done that. But using something like the Atlanta Fed's wage tracker, which keeps the same people and looks at the same cohort year over year, you notice it's been pretty stable there. And so that's inconsistent with the typical recession, right? Where there's job losses and there's wage pressure. Now we're going to see it from the other dynamic too. You listen to the administration, they're talking about a higher minimum wage, rising wages, but also coupling that with the idea that in this next infrastructure bill, and I'm putting up the air quotes for those that aren't looking on the YouTube channel, because the infrastructure bill is like 20, 25% infrastructure related, right? They're even talking about now putting new checks in there as long as we have some semblance of a pandemic. So where does this money slosh around to? And you know the abundance side of the equation, what is still abundant out there in the marketplace? So, you know, I think the first point I make, I, these are excellent points, by the way, but I think the, the, the first point I would personally make is that typically when you get a crisis, it's a sort of 
it's an accelerant to the trends that are already unfolding. So the 2008 crisis was actually a massive accelerant to globalization. Um, if you if you go back to it, you know what did we do when 2008 hit? Well, the Western world put together the G20. You know, if that wasn't a sign of globalization, I don't know what was. It's like get all the leaders together. You know, promise that we won't go down the path of protectionism, so they won't be the, like the 1930s, etc. Uh, and then what did China do? China went on an infrastructure spending binge such as the world had never seen. Basically, in 10 years, China poured more concrete than the U.S. did throughout the 20th century. Uh, you know, building motorways, high-speed rail links, you know, you name it, and they did it. Concretely, what did that mean? That mean that 500 million work Chinese workers joined the global workforce. Um, you know, up until 2008, if you were producing in China, that basically meant that you were producing in Shanghai or Shenzhen. Um, that's it. You know, after 2008, if you're producing in China, that means you can be producing in Chongqing or in Zhangzhou or in Wuhan. Now, fast forward to today, and now all of a sudden we wake up to the fact that maybe the Wuhan cost isn't as cheap as we thought it was. Uh, outsourcing everything to Wuhan comes with potential big problems. First, of course, you know, all of a sudden disease goes global, number one. Uh, but number two, you know, the more you stretch your supply chain, the more fragile it becomes, right? And that all of a sudden, because your factory shuts down in Wuhan, you can't produce your Ford F-150 in Detroit. Um, and so already, I would say, you know, coming into the COVID crisis, we were already moving into a world that was deglobalizing. Um, you know, the Brexit, the Trump election, because they were cost to globalization that all of a sudden people realized and said, you know what, I don't like these societal costs. So there was already a pushback against globalization. But following COVID, this pushback is now full on. Um, so, you know, if the 2008 crisis was an acceleration of globalization and hence a deflationary impact, because when 500 million Chinese workers joined the global workforce, that's very deflationary. And we wrote a lot about that at the time. I, I, I wrote a book called A Roadmap for Troubling Times and another one called Too Different for Conference, where, you know, I was at the time I was a massive deflationist. Um, today, because you know, for me, China's entrance into the world was a huge deflationary shock for everybody. Because in essence, with China, you had the ability to produce, uh, at th you, could, you could tap in first world infrastructure at third world prices. Right. Um, but this is now over. This is now over. You know, we're, we're basically telling, first of all, because China isn't really for third world prices anymore, number one. And number two, we're also increasingly saying, well, look, we, we need to, to produce more lo locally. We need to... Uh, and even for geostrategic and geopolitical reason, we now need to review our supply chains. Um, now, for me, one of the, the single most important development of the past few years was the U.S.'s decision to, or Donald Trump's decision, to basically embargo China, not on oil. I thought it would actually happen on oil, but on semiconductors. Um, basically, the U.S. bought Huawei and ZTE, the Chinese, you know, companies that we're so proud of, they're, they're few like national champions. They brought them through their knees, through by, to their knees by embargoing their semiconductors. Now, this was in 2017. If you remember, summer 2017, they blocked uh, uh, semiconductors to ZTE and then 2018 to Huawei. Two end results of this. The first, if you're a semiconductor company, what'd you do? 
well, you stop investing because all of a sudden, you know, China's the biggest market and you don't know if you can sell there anymore. So, so you stop investing. Fast forward two years, what do we have? Massive semiconductor shortage. Like, you know, it's, they need to have genius to, to, to take that one. You, you, <laughs> you, tell, you tell, yeah, but end result, Ford comes out and says, we're, we're going to be sh uh, short 650,000 pickup trucks this year. Uh, like 650,000 F-150s don't get produced because we don't have semiconductors. It's like, you know, you pull on a string and you never know what happens, right? You, right. you, tell, you tell semiconductor companies, well, you can't sell into your biggest market. It's like, okay, then I'm done investing. Thank you very much. Before you know it, shortage. Second thing that happens, U.S. exports to China collapse. Why? Because every Chinese company turns around and says, I don't want to be the next Huawei. I can't afford to be dependent on a Dow chemical product or a DuPont product or uh, uh, you know, a Goodyear tire. Um, you know, I'm just going to be buying stuff now from Korea, from Japan, and more importantly, producing it domestically. Um, even if the local producer is not as good quality or higher price or whatever, I, in essence, I'm going to give up the best price, the best quality at the best price for the best security. And that's what we are witnessing today across China. That's what we're witnessing in Europe. That's what we're witnessing in, in the U.S. Everybody falls back on a more local supply chain. Um, and as you do, you, in essence, reduce dramatically all the, the productivity of the past few years, because a lot of the productivity gains in the past 20 years was linked to globalization. Um, so now that we've gone in reverse mode on globalization, I don't see how that doesn't end up inflationary. Uh, I, I really don't. Yeah, well, especially, I mean, we focus a lot on the U.S., and I even led you down the path talking about the fiscal deficits and just the amount of spending here. But inflation tends to be, especially with globalization, more of a global phenomenon than necessarily a localized one. Yeah, you have your basket cases at times where, you know, irrespective that you're going to get that. But, you know, what you're, what you're hearkening on here is very important, though, too, because it's not like these supply chains, it's not just Asia redefining them. We have to redefine them here in the Western world as well. And where, where do we get access to that? And so as you're thinking about like CapEx expenditures, you're thinking about investing over the next few years, what does that look like with this new redefinition of the supply chains? Well, then the, it comes back to your point, to, to the question uh, that I didn't really answer earlier, but I will try now, about where, where the abundance and where the shortage is, right? So, you know, if you think, okay, you know, to produce stuff, you need, uh, you need land, you need labor, you need capital, you need commodities, and you need knowledge. Um, these are basically your five factors of production, right? Your, your five inputs. Um, now, we lived in a world where labor was plentiful, where you could get as much labor as you, as, as you wanted. Now, to your point, we now live in a world where labor isn't going to be that plentiful, partly because in the Western world, we are now moving down the path of paying people to not work. Um, you know, most countries in this crisis have adopted some kind of universal basic income. Um, and it's very hard to, to, to walk away from that. Um, as you know, I'm sure you know Milton Friedman's old quote that there's, there's nothing as permanent as a temporary government program. Um, and so, you know, now that we've gone down this path, Milton Friedman also highlighted that if you pay people to not work, you shouldn't be surprised if they don't. 
Um, and so, you know, if there, there's a whole, you know, the whole like labor is abundant. I think we can throw that in the bin. Labor is now in shortage. Um, and you see this pretty much everywhere around the world now. Um, capital, you could say, is abundant. Uh, you know, capital has been abundant, is staying abundant. The central banks are making sure it's abundant. Land never really changes, you know, so we can leave that aside. Commodities is a particularly interesting one um, because commodities do does go through cycles of being abundant or not and, and back again. Um, I think I personally, you know, one of my big beliefs is commodities are going to be in massive shortage. Um, and I think they're going to be in massive shortage because we're doing everything we can to actually starve commodities of capital. Um, you know, if you look at the commodity sector, it is today the one sector uh, that, you know, you can't invest in for ESG reasons, for, for, you know, it's, and partly because the commodity sector through a whole cycle is a terrible steward of capital. You know, they, they destroy capital time and time again. And they, we've just spent, we've just had a 10-year cycle where they've destroyed hundreds of billions of dollars. The shale oil industry in the U.S. blew through $300 billion. Um, and so... It's you know, expensive I, financing nonetheless. You know, they finance yeah, yeah. it cheap either. Yeah, yeah, yeah no. So having, having just done that, you know, people aren't rushing to give them more money. Um, so, uh, and then you get to the interesting one, which is knowledge. Now, knowledge is an interesting input because... Um, you know, it's not like if I use oil, then you don't have the oil. Like, you know, I use it, you don't get it. But if I use knowledge, that doesn't mean you can't use the same knowledge, right? Uh, there's, there's no shortage of knowledge per se. In fact, the more we share knowledge, conceptually, the more it grows. Um, that's what we're trying to do right now, I guess. Um, <laughs> share, share, yeah, share knowledge and then share it, share it with other people who will contribute. And then, you know, we all get smarter in this sort of Socratic type of, uh, of exercise. Um, but what's interesting now is, you know, while we went through a phase where we were trying to share knowledge everywhere around the world, increasingly that sharing of knowledge, those first 20 years of the internet are now going into a different direction. First, the whole tech world, if we, you know, sort of make an equation, the knowledge world and tech world are roughly the same thing. The tech world is breaking apart into three separate economic zones. Um, you have an emerging market zone dominated by China, a Western zone dominated by the US, and an India zone, each with their own national champions and each increasingly segregated from the other. Um, secondly, it's pretty obvious that you know, we are trying to restrict the access of knowledge to, to China mostly, uh, you know, saying, okay, maybe we don't take their master students anymore, maybe we close down the Confucius. Uh, institutes, uh, et cetera. And then finally, you know, within what we could say our knowledge institutions in the Western world, whether our platforms, whether our universities, et cetera, uh, we are rapidly moving away from free speech. Uh, we are rapidly moving away from the free debate of ideas. Uh, and, and instead, you know, everything is to be marshaled and, and people end up self, self, um, um, sort of quarantining themselves. Um, so, you know, while the first 20 years of the internet, I would argue, were led to an absolute explosion of knowledge, I'm not sure that this is true anymore. So we've moved from abundance of knowledge and we'll move to shortage. We move from abundance of commodities, we're moving into shortage. We move from abundance of labor and we're moving into shortages. These are like 
you know, big, big structural changes that I think will take a long time to, to turn around. Yeah, there's there's a lot to pick through there, Louis. Um, Sorry. Place, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I definitely have some uh, some questions to ask around the commodities and, and also the, the portion on China there. But starting with commodities, you know, I think we're in agreement with the, the structural shortage that uh, we may be seeing in commodities given the lack of investment. But do you see it being different this time as well? Do you see a driver of demand to, to couple with that shortage of demand? Whereas you, you had spoken earlier about the the commodity, the intense commodity consumption that was required from China in the early 2000s. Uh, it, it seems like uh, that may, you know, demand from China may still be there, but just not at that same pace as, you know, anywhere close to where it was in the early 2000s. Who will be out there to, to pick up the demand from for, for commodities within that equation? Or is it even necessary for that uh, structural bull market, I suppose, in commodities? So we had like, you know, to your point, you know, the, the roaring bull market we had in the early 2000s, uh, led by China, um, you know, was, yeah, was something to, to just, just mind blowing. Um, I, I don't think we'll see the same thing again. Um, having said that, you know, if you take oil, uh, which at the end of the day is the single most important one, because pretty much every other commodity is priced from oil, given that, you know, Every commodity is between a third and half energy just to extract. Um, so if you take oil, you know, the outside of recessions, outside of, of shocks to the system, oil demand basically grows a million barrels per day. I mean, a million, the equivalent of a million barrels per day per year. Uh, and this has been going on for now for, for 30 years. And most of that growth is basically coming from emerging markets. Um, and I think that's basically the crossroad we are today. When you look at the demand that is going to keep going from emerging markets, emerging markets, let's not forget, that are just because of base effects are just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, so yes, China's growth may not be as big, but you know, China's economy is now twice what it was 10 years ago. Um, so you know, the 10% growth that China used to do, like 5% today is just as good. Um, so um, and the same is true for a number of emerging markets. Now, the one emerging market, of course, that could replicate what, what China did, it's never going to do it at the same pace, is India. Um, and I think that's perhaps one of the pieces of the equation that people have sort of overlooked today. Um, as you guys know, because you guys subscribe, you know, we, we have a dedicated India team and we publish a fair amount on India because it's, it's a fascinating place. Um, but, you know, India today the response to the COVID crisis has been a stimulus, a fiscal and monetary stimulus such as India has never seen. Um, now you could say it's nothing compared to the United States, um, but look at it this way. In the United States today, you know, you might end up with double digit nominal GDP growth. Um, it's, I mean, I, I don't think it's out of, out of the, the possibility. You might, you'll get a few quarters of double digit nominal GDP growth, which is, you know, unprecedented. Given the fiscal stimulus and the monetary policy stimulus, I think it's going to happen. Um, you put on top of that a crazy driving season. Now, on top of that, you have India stimulating like never before. You have a China that's humming along. You have other emerging markets that are, you know, by and large humming along outside of Brazil, where there's real issues in South Africa, where there's real issues. Um, you know, you add all this together and you think, OK, um, 
Now you could say, well, Europe is still a black hole. And that's true. But Europe's been a black hole for, frankly, my whole life. Um, so, you know, I, I look at this and I think, okay, uh, to me, it's a lot of little things you add, like growing demand from the US, growing demand from India, decent demand from China, decent demand from emerging markets. It all adds up to pretty solid demand. So the picture you're painting with all this is very pro-cyclical. It's very pro-risk assets, which seems to be very thematic when we talk to investors today. What can go wrong, right? I think that's everybody seems to be on one side of this idea that's inflation, it's pro-cyclical, it's a declining dollar. What what can go wrong, and what what's everybody missing from this? Well, so so I I agree with you that it feels fairly consensus, but. I'm not sure, you know, it feels it started to feel consensus three, four months ago. And yes, you know, you've seen the rally in financials and the rally in commodities, et cetera. But, you know, is it so consensus that it's like fully priced in? Uh, I, I personally don't think so. It's only been three, four months. I don't believe like people have like shifted their portfolios enough already. Um, but yes, what what could go wrong? Well, let me ask, let me turn it around and say what could go right. Uh, and then I'll go into what could go wrong. Um, what could go right, I think what, what perhaps people are, you know, if you go look back at the past six months, in essence, the U.S. started to reopen, U.S. economy started to do better, uh, vaccines rolled out, and U.S. bond yields moved from 50 basis points to 170 basis points, right? Pretty much in a straight line, like in six months. Of like, um, now, today, the view you know, the other big economic zone, which we haven't talked about is Europe. And we haven't talked about it because most people have written it off. Europe is a gong show, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, they, and they've completely messed up their rollout, their vaccine rollout, and they've done a terrible job, et cetera. But, you know, the vaccines are now rolling out. Finally, you could say they are three or four months late, but they are rolling out. Which I always find shocking, given how much regulation they have, how they tend to be more somewhat obedient, you know, when I think of the German culture and the like, it just, <laughs> it seems shocking to me that it's not more methodical and organized, um, yeah. especially given the situation we were in. We had every chance to flub it and, and somehow we, we got it right here in the U.S. You know, I, to your point, if you're German, seeing the English beat you at organization, it must really crush you. Right. <laughs> it must, like yeah. the English who can't run a train on time, mm. who can't build a car. You can't, it must absolutely devastate you. Yeah, yeah no, to your point, it is, it is, it is, it is baffling. But I think, you know, finally, like better late than never. So, no, it speaks, to be honest, to be honest, it speaks to the incompetence of the European administrations. It speaks to, uh, you know, the whole point of the European Union is that, you know, we're, we're stronger together, which has turned out to be, in this crisis, being completely false. And the whole point of the, the, the European Union is, uh, is the veneer of competency, right? It's like the, the technocrats in Brussels know best. Uh, and again, that this has been blown out of the water. But having said that, Brussels, I mean, completely, excuse my French, um, shat the bed. Uh, you know, Brussels, having done that, the national authorities have now stepped in and they've taken over. And so it is getting rolled out. Um, so now fast forward three months. Uh, and it needs to roll out because Europe needs the summer. You know, I think if you don't have a proper summer with holidays, et cetera, either you'll have riots on the streets uh, or too many businesses will go bust, et cetera. You know, you know, for 
country like Spain, tourism is 12% of GDP. Um, you, know, for, you know, for Italy, I think it's 10. Like they can't afford not to. Um, so roll, vaccines are being rolled out now. You know, you, know I, you might know this, but I own a, a professional rugby club in France. Uh, we're being told we'll be allowed to have people in the stadiums in mid-May. So I think like basically by mid-May, which isn't far from now, it's like six weeks, um, we may start to see the same thing that we saw in the U.S. Now, not to the same pace because it is Europe. But what does this mean? That means that your German bond yields will go from minus 20 basis points to plus 40, plus 50, plus 60, plus 70. I mean, if Europe's back on track, you know, why would you be in a minus 20 bond yield? Steepening, steepening of European yield curve. It doesn't mean that, so maybe over that same period, U.S. bond yields go to 2, 210. Uh, steepening of yield curves everywhere. If that happens, which seems to me likely, how do financials react? How do commodities react? Um, I think we have another leg up. Um, and maybe you even want to own like the, sh the crappiest of the crappy European financials in that, in that scenario. Uh, because, you know, the, the, the shit floats to the top, right? Excuse my French again. Uh, You're French. You, you can use French words. It's okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, and so, um, so all this to say, you know, th to me, that's, seems to me the more likely scenario in the coming months is Europe reopens, European yield curve starts to steepen like the US ones have, Euro rallies, uh, European financials rallies, US dollar takes another leg down. Um, and with that, commodities take another leg up. Well, I think that's, that's what I was going to go with that too, when you talk about Europe too, what you're saying. And, and I mean, it has been throughout this pandemic is that Europe has been the lead, you know, of looking at cases and hospitalizations, fatalities. And we didn't seem to participate in this one. Now, it's a little too early to tell. Maybe there's still some ramifications. But I know anecdotally, we've seen massive activity here in California. Restaurants open, people on the streets. It's kind of spring break holiday. So I'm very empathetic to what you're talking about, too. When, you know, we just started our, our baseball season. I see the Texas Rangers are full capacity. Oh, people want to go. Yeah, people want to go. And so, go. And, yeah, and then you, you, you give them this check. So I, you know, I'm not I'm not convinced that this money gets piled into markets this time. Oh, no. I think people want to do things, and so I think the service side of the equation is really a benefactor. But it's, oh, you should uh, buy not you should buy Vegas casinos all yeah. the way. Right, it wow. felt like it. I mean, we we saw some uh, Twitter videos of like someone going south towards Los Angeles, and it was Friday. The the traffic <laughs> into Vegas, you know, it was yeah. it's it's a it's the basketball final four. People got shots. People got money. They're ready to go. And so uh, I'll use the pun here. It is the shot in the arm we all need, right, yeah. to get the economy going. So is that what it's going to take for the next leg, both in yields? What does that mean for U.S. though, too? If we see that, a lot of people don't don't realize going from minus twenty to like a seventy basis point yield, you're going to be down about ten points in that trade, yeah. Yeah, right? Because it you know, has a longer duration than than the, than the tenor of it. But the thing is, is that. That, that's, that could be a really big awakening where we haven't seen really positive yields there for a while. What does that portend for the U.S. then and in our rate path? Do, do we move commensurately there? Or how do you think about the interplay between rates there? You know, I don't think you move commensurately. So I think, you know, as Europe, Europe will move 70 basis points, the U.S. will move 30. Okay. Uh, the U.S. has already had its big move. Um, you know, the, the, the reopening trade in the U.S. has, you know, it's happened already somewhat, somewhat. Um, for me, the question is, when does it happen in Europe? Um, so, uh, you know, it's 
the odds that it happens in the next couple of months to me is very, very high. Um, so but Christine Lagarde says, no, no, don't worry about it. We got it all under control. Well, which makes me really think it's going to happen. Because <laughs> uh, when you look at Christine Lagarde's track record, uh, I think if you fade whatever she does, you usually do pretty well. Um, so, um, no, so, you know, going back to, you know, what could go right, what could go wrong. What could go right is, you know, Europe, Europe uh, reopens in essence. Um, and it, it won't be as strong, et cetera, as the U.S., but, you know, it'll have an impact on the yield curves. It'll have an impact on the currencies, on the commodities. What could go wrong? Uh, so that, that would accentuate the trades that are already happening. Um, you know, what could go wrong? And, you know, nobody's talking today. We're in a very odd situation where the biggest economy in the world, the U.S., is like stepping on the gas like you wouldn't like it's never done before. Right. You know, it's it, all fiscal, all monetary, hands on deck, et cetera. We've discussed this. Meanwhile, China is tightening. The second biggest economy in the world is actually going through a tightening cycle. You know, they're, they're arresting guys, shooting them for, for corruption, which is the clear sign that they're tightening. You know, in China, the, the first sign that you're starting a tightening cycle is they arrest a few corrupt bankers and they execute them. And then nobody makes loans anymore. Um, it, it works a treat. Um, and so we are now in that we are now in that process. You know, they're you know inter inter interbank rates going up, all that stuff. Tight, tightening lending to the property developers, trying to crack the back of the property cycle. Um, and so you know, to the extent that China has been such a source of global demand, um, that of course could be what goes wrong for the commodity trade. That in essence, China tightens too much. Um, and that you end up with a bear market in China, a rollover in growth, um, that China tightens while at the same time, US and European companies, because of ESG reasons, human rights abuses, uh, the fact that China is increasingly behaving like a bully against uh, uh, Australia, against Canada, against everybody really, um, that people say, okay, you know what, we gotta cut up China. And so that you know, you you get that the China ends up being a, a, a black hole. Now, I'm not saying that this is going to happen. To be very clear, uh, but if you ask me, okay, what am I worried about that could go wrong? And I'm not saying this is going to happen, but that would potentially be for me my concern um, that th this could go wrong. But I'm not saying it is going that that this is going to happen. But if you're looking for how it goes wrong, I would go down that path. But Again, I don't think it goes wrong. I think the next step is commodities higher, dollar lower, um, you and know, yields higher. Well, China definitely has a history of walling itself off, you know, somewhat successfully and not successful, <laughs> I suppose. But uh, one of the things staying on that topic is that, you know, one of the main focal points within China has been Hong Kong. And a lot of the changes that have occurred, occurred there, especially in the last, you know, I'll call it 12 to 18 months. Um, coincidentally, uh, in talking before this recording, you had mentioned that you have been, you usually spend time in, in Asia, mostly in Hong Kong, Beijing, but uh, you've been away for the last 12 months or so. Now, when you when you head back to Hong Kong, I mean, what, what are your expectations? Do you also, just from a financial hub standpoint, do you still do you see Hong Kong's role changing within Asia as, as a, a center of financial activity? Uh, oof, we could talk hours about this. And 
if you put a coin in that machine, I'm, uh, I'm going to get going and you won't be able to stop me. Um, the um, Look, I'm very passionate about everything that's happened in Hong Kong. You know, I've, I've actually lived in Hong Kong more than I've lived anywhere else in my life. I've spent more than 20 years there. It's uh, all my children were born there. It's, it's, a, it's a big part of who I am. And of course, our business is headquartered there. Um, I think, uh, you know, what's, what's happened in Hong Kong to a large extent, uh, I would say was predictable. And, you know, we wrote a lot about it coming into this, but, you know, it, it was a big part of the book I wrote two years ago called Clash of Empires, uh, looking at Hong Kong's future. The reality is that, you know, China needs its own financial center. It tried to build Shanghai as its financial center, but that was never going to work. It had Hong Kong right there. Um, so Hong Kong, China was always going to take over. It, you know, it, if China wanted to be a superpower, you can't be a superpower without your own financial capital. And you know, Hong Kong was just too tempting a prize uh, for them not, not to take. It was always going to be taken. Uh, the, the only question was always how and when. Um, so it's happened. And, um, and so, you know, Hong Kong is going to be, yeah, it, it's going to be different. Uh, it's going to be a much more Chinese city. It's, uh, you know, Hong Kong was sort of Asia's financial center. You did all sorts of deals pan-Asia. Increasingly, Hong Kong will be deals mostly surrounding China. But, you know, China is such a big economy that, you know, for Hong Kong, it doesn't mean at all the end of Hong Kong. Far from it. It's just, you know, Hong Kong reinvents itself every 15 years anyway. Now it'll just be China's financial center and not much else. So when you think about, uh, you know, kind of the current sentiment in the marketplace too, so we've got your three big thematic trades. Uh, I think we, we really agree with those. Um, you, you, wrote, you wrote a series recently called Financial Manias, right? Yeah. And so what, what are some of them? How do you identify them? And most importantly, how do you avoid them, especially with the FOMO that permeates the markets these days? So maybe you can talk, talk about identification, how to how to stay away, how to what should you participate? You know, uh, give, give us your thinking on that uh, as a snippet. Well, you can definitely participate. They're 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 a lot of fun, right? And uh, you know, you can make a lot of money in bubbles. Uh, you just have to be knowledge. You just have to acknowledge that a you're in a bubble, and you know you can't go all in, right? You just put this, you say okay. Just like when you go to Las Vegas, you're not going to say, okay, I'm, I'm taking all my money and I'm going to have a hell of a weekend. Uh, Sell my might, house and hope it works. You know? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Put it all in black. Uh, you know, you, you come in and you say, all right, you know, I'm willing to, how much can I lose on this? And and you put it in and it works, it doesn't, but just just like you would in Vegas, right? And that's how you, you have to address it. You can be a, it can, so you can participate if you want, but to your point, you have to know that you're playing in a casino, that you're not really investing, that it's uh, that you're playing on a roll of a dice. Um, and so, you know, how you know how do you know? You know, I'm actually working on a piece right now where, look, prices are made at the margin, right? Um, it's uh, it's the last share of Tesla that makes the traded that makes the price the price of Tesla. Now. Uh, or the last uh, Bitcoin traded, et cetera. Now, you know, historically, you know, what is it? Maybe three or 4% of, let's say, the shares of Coca-Cola trade, right? And you know that historically, you know, you're going to be within a range and you can go back and, and look, et cetera. And then you also know that if all of a sudden, as we saw with 
that hedge fund that just blew up, uh, Argigos, um, that if all of a sudden 10% of, of the float gets offered, your price is, is not the same, right? If all of a sudden the volume on offer is too high, everything collapses. So going back, I think, to, uh, to, to financial manias, um, I think you would expect your, you know, you look at historically, for example, let's say the junk bond market. Um, the junk bond market um, historically would be trading, you know, let's say six, five or six percent of the total corporate bond market. Uh, if it becomes twelve, if it becomes twice as much, you know, you start you start getting worried. Uh, if the, your daily volumes start to be too big, um, or now there's many ways you can look at these volumes. You can look at these volumes relative to their where they are historically relative to similar asset classes. And you can look at these volumes uh, just relative to money supply. Um, and so, you know, if, if stock traded relative to money supply, uh, if the amount of stock traded relative to money supply goes, goes through the roof, you know, maybe, maybe you, you start getting worried because at some point, the next increase in share isn't gonna get absorbed. And it's when that last increase in share doesn't get absorbed, that all of a sudden the prices gap. Um, so, look, I think when it comes to finance, so that's you know one way you can quantify your financial mania. But the bottom line, it's you know it's a little, it's what the Supreme Court judge said, right? Between how do you know if it's pornography or, or art? Uh, and yeah, you know, <laughs> you know, like when you see it, you you kind of know. Uh, and this, the same is true for financial mania. You know, if if all of a sudden you know. My 16-year-old son starts asking me, "How come we're not invested in GameStop?" Uh, I know, okay, this is this is not quite right. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, fitting to use the Justice Potter Stewart quote there. Um, you know, I think uh, Larry Flint just passed away recently too, where where that yeah. came from. But I, I want to end this today with a quote from you because uh -huh. one of our analysts just loved it, and he's been saying it many times on the desk. And this is attributed to. To Louis Vincent Gay, it says, liquidity is a coward. As soon as a fight starts, he disappears. And so that's exactly what we're talking about there, right? That yeah. it works to it works both ways, right? And it so it can be, ways. it's an asset and it can be at the detriment. So uh Louis, it's been a great time. I mean, look, this is a, a tour de force of the world. Uh, we really appreciate it. Um, you know, wh where can our listeners really get plugged into you guys, get access to your research? How how can they follow the works you put out? So I'm, uh, I, I don't do any social media, and I'm sorry, I just don't have the time, to be honest. Um, so the best is to go to our website. Um, we, we have a, I think it's a pretty cool website, and we'll be doing it as well. But uh, So it's gafcal.com. It's uh, that's golf, alpha, victor, echo, kilo, alpha, lima, dot com. Love, love the phonetic uh, alphabet as well, so that way <laughs> no one misses it. So, so great. Well, it's great to have you, Louis Vincent Gabe. We really appreciate it. Again, you should check out uh, not only their website and their research, but the books you've written are extremely fascinating, well thought out. So I understand why you don't have time for the social media. <laughs> but I'd be remiss if I didn't introduce you to Sam's favorite part of the show right before yes. we let you go today. So Sam, uh -huh. take it away. All right, and that favorite part of the show is called Sherman Says. It's where I'll offer a series of alternating and unique prompts uh, between you and Jeff Sherman there to which 
Uh, I hope to elicit a top of mind response that is brief, <laughs> but, uh, but complete. Yeah, between the two of us, I don't know if that's even humanly possible, right? Yeah, it's very tough. Yeah. All right, I'm going to kick this one off with Sherman. To it's global minimum corporate tax rate. I'm conflicted here, Sam, because global is the threat that I'm getting hung up on because I think the U.S. should have a minimum tax rate. If you're going to say corporate tax, if you're going to say there's an AMT on me, an alternative minimum tax rate, let's do it. But good luck. Good luck enforcing it is my point. So that'll be my answer. Good luck enforcing it. Yeah, I can't say I disagree there. Uh, So it's for you, Louis, with efficient, clean energy. I love love for us to get it. and I think that's going to actually be the big question mark of the next uh, five years. If we get it, if all the money we plowed into wind, solar, et cetera, does magically produce uh, the efficient clean energy that we need, then all my fear of inflation will be for naught. Um, if that money ends up being pissed away, which right now is looking that way, um, then there'll be a ter- terrific loss of productivity. We will, for the first time, in essence, of taking a productive use of energy and going for a less productive uh, method of energy. Uh, and from that, you get less growth, not more growth. So it is, for me, the single most important question, one of the more important questions in the coming years. All right. Back to Sherman with vaccination passport. <laughs> what was it? Texas is outlawing it today, right? It's what I saw. Ab- Abbott said there's be no such thing. It's illegal. Um, you know, I'm conflicted here. Um, yeah, I'm stretching on it. So I'm going to say uh, I'd rather have it than not. All right. Well, Texas loves its outlaws, too. So maybe there's some rationale behind that. <laughs> um, back to you, Louis, with vaccine diplomacy. Oh, very interesting one. Um, you know, one of my big question marks has been how low the rollout of the Chinese vaccine has been. Um, you know, they've taken their vaccines and instead of vaccinating their country, They've shipped them out to to all over the world. Now, you know, are they trying to make friends? Are they not sure about how healthy their own vaccines are? And they figure that have other people be the uh, the cobys, the uh, the guinea pigs for it. Um, it's uh, uh, it's it, it's a very very odd one. Uh, or do they just figure nobody's dying here, so it's the human thing to do is to, to pass these on? Um, it's uh, it's very odd at a time when you see, on the one hand, Europe tearing itself apart and basically tearing apart their rule books, each to get their own vaccines, and China and Russia going around saying, you know what, here, have ours. Um, you know, when the bad guys in the world do good things and the good guys do bad things, it leaves you feeling a little bit despondent. Yeah, I saw actually, I saw too, the, uh, the head of uh, the Argentinians, I don't know if it's prime minister or president, but... Uh, had the vaccine and now it actually has it, right? Or has a new strain. So that was one of those high-profile cases. So. Well, as you and I were discussing, Jeffrey, the, you know, the, I'm in a very odd situation where, you know, I know a few people around the world. I don't know a single person who's died from COVID, so maybe I've been very lucky. I now know two people who've died after taking their jabs, within 48 hours of taking their jabs. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, yeah. As you said, we're all a function of our own experiences, right? Too. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah, it definitely sets a tone for you. Um, <laughs> let's see here. Back to Sherman with global economic recovery. Underway. All right. Air travel. Uh, air travel? Yes. Uh, boy, do I wish I had not soon enough. 
right? Uh, wealth tax. Uh, horrific. Dollars short. As bad as, uh, well, no, I'm like, I'm a dollar short. I try to argue it's, it's, uh, go for it. Real rates. Uh, say it again. Real rates or real yields. Real yields, uh, persistently negative across the globe right now, especially if, uh, if Louis correct, um, they're going to get more markedly negative unless the vigilantes show up. So stay in state, stay tuned in. Right. And then the last one for today, anti-fragile assets. Ah, best one yet. Um, anti. So if you haven't read Taleb's book on anti-fragility, you must. And look, for 40 years, the anti-fragile asset of portfolio were government bonds. They no longer are, which leaves everybody in a tight bond in a tight bound because you need an anti-fragile anchor in portfolios. And if it's not going to be government bonds, then what is it going to be? All right. Well, you heard it here. So, uh, Louis Vincent Gabe, thank you so much. Or God, sorry, I always screw that no up. Worries. <laughs> yeah, but I appreciate your time. Appreciate the lessons in French. Um, great, great <laughs> tour across the markets. And um, uh, also, if you didn't see this uh, on our YouTube channel, check it out. YouTube.com backslash double line capital. I'm not going to spell it out with the phonetic alphabet, but backslash double line capital. Um, also, you can catch on there. Uh, you can see channel 11. Uh, which is our newscast that we put out monthly, uh, hosted by Ken Shinoda. And more importantly, uh, Sam Lau has been cheating on me and doing another podcast with another Jeff at Double Line, Jeff Mayberry, and they do that weekly. So kudos to them. That's uh, called the Monday Morning Minutes. Um, and you can see that out there uh, on our website, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify, Google Podcasts, I think it's called now. I can't stay on top of it, but uh, you can follow us out there. Look at us on the Twitter uh, we do have the social media, Louie, because we have multiple people to help us with it. So it's the only reason we can stay on top of it. But at Sherman Show Pod is where you can find uh, the uh, links out there. You'll see charts about the things we discussed. And more importantly, stay tuned for our next guest. Louis Vincent Gobb, thank you so much for your time. represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without express written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefor, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any double-line entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any double-line entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. 
copyright 2021 double line capital